All right, we are in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We started uh, Acts chapter 19 last week in verses 1 through 10. Today we are in verses 11 through 20. So go ahead and open up your Bibles there. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. Now Paul is in Ephesus. And he's been in Ephesus for a long time. Uh, We actually read very briefly last week, Paul spends a grand total of over two years in Ephesus. And in light of how much time he spends there, we actually don't know all that much about what happens in that time. We learned last week that he met some disciples of John the Baptist. He, He leads them to follow Christ. We also learned last week that he spends three months, the first three months in Ephesus, in the synagogue preaching to the Jews and the converts. And he spends the rest of his time, uh, whatever that is, uh, 21 months or so, uh, in something called the Hall of Tyrannus, which is a uh, um, a lecture hall, a public lecture hall, a public forum, where he's able to continue to preach to uh, to Gentiles the gospel of Jesus Christ. And during that time, the gospel spread throughout all of that region, this region that they called Asia, Western, Western Turkey today. So this week, we're still in Ephesus. And the thing that unites this story, the theme that everything's built around, the core of it, is the theme of power. Now, power is a real thing. It's quantifiable. It's scientifically measurable. You can measure power in watts, okay? There's a, uh, there's a formula for measuring power. And if there's uh, scientists in the room, I'm going to betray my ignorance here. But science says... A, apparently, that power is work over time. P equals W over T. So uh, the amount of effort or energy expended to do a task, that's work, over the amount of time it takes to expend that energy. Um, That's what power is. It's a real thing. It's quantifiable. It's scientifically measurable. It's not relative. But our perception of power is relative. How powerful we perceive something to be, that is relative. Let me give you an example of that. Up here on the screen, I've got an advertisement from the 1980s uh, for a computer hard drive, 10 megabytes, $3,398 for 10 megabytes. And apparently that was a pretty good deal because they took out a full-page advertisement to tell this computer magazine, we will give you 10 megabytes for $3,398. That was apparently a powerful hard drive at that time. Now this is 100,000 times bigger than that. 100,000 times more powerful than that hard drive. So you would think that all things being equal, that I would have spent $339 million (laughs) for this thing. I didn't. Uh, I spent $20 for this. What gives, right? What what changes? Why is it that that was 339, whatever that is, um, and a good deal... But today, I can get 100,000 times more for 20 bucks. The power of 10 megabytes did not change. 10 megabytes then was able to do the same thing that 10 megabytes today is able to do. Yet today, you can't even buy a 10 megabyte hard drive or a 10 megabyte thumb drive. The reason why is not because the power has changed, but our perception of the power has changed. In other words, when 10 megabytes there is compared to a million megabytes here, that looks incredibly weak. (laughs) Power is relative. At least our perception of power is relative. 
We think something is powerful until something more powerful comes along. We think we know power until we see the real deal. And that's true of technological power. And what we see in Ephesus today is that that's true of spiritual power as well. The people in Ephesus, they were into magic, which is the manipulation of spiritual, supernatural power. And in this passage, they see a power that so excels, so exceeds any power that they've seen before. And this is something that we see all throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament specifically. We see times when the God of Israel goes toe-to-toe with the so-called gods of the nations. We think back to uh, passages like Exodus chapter 7 through 12, where God goes toe-to-toe with the gods of the Egyptians and the magicians. He sends plagues on the Egyptian people. Each one of them attacks the dominion of a different Egyptian god, saying, I am mightier than that god. I am mightier than that god. I am mightier than that God, all the way through the Egyptian pantheon. We also see in 1 Kings chapter 18 that God goes toe-to-toe with Baal and his prophets on the top of Mount Carmel. And while the prophets of Baal called upon Baal and he was unable to send fire from heaven, the God of Israel was able and fire came down from heaven and consumed not only the offering, but the water and rocks as well. And when God goes toe-to-toe with these so-called gods and these God contests, the result is actually the same everywhere we look. When people witness them, they change teams. In Exodus chapter 12, 38, we read that a mixed multitude of people went up with the Israelites when they left Egypt. They saw where true power was. They saw which God was the true God, and they went with his people. We see the same thing at the top of Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18, 39. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And so here in Ephesus, when God goes toe-to-toe with the supernatural spiritual forces of the day, people will see it, and they will learn that the supernatural, superior power of God, when it's on display, it transforms hearts, and it transforms lives. When the superior power of God is on display, it transforms hearts and it transforms lives. That's what we're going to see. So let's pause really briefly one more time to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this passage. It is, it's a passage that I confess when I first looked at it, I didn't think I'd be able to pull much out of it. <laughs> It seemed kind of random. I didn't really see the point of it. But Father, this powerful. This is a powerful passage about your power and your power not only to work in supernatural ways, but also to work in everyday ways, Lord, to transform lives and hearts. And so, Father, we pray that, <laughs> sorry, not that that's any less supernatural. But Father, we pray that as we dive into this passage, you would do just that in us. God, you would show us more about who you are Reveal your power to us so that it will change our hearts and transform our lives. Do what you will today, Lord. We trust you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Acts 19. I'm going to read verses 11 through 17. So follow along in your Bibles if you got them. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or, or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. 
Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of Sceva, uh, the, a Jewish high priest, uh, sorry, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the spirit, who was the spirit, leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. All right. That's a weird passage. <laughs> uh, we, we look at this, this passage, and the first thing that jumps out to me, right at the beginning, I wonder if you caught it as well, there's a, there's a pandemic here. But this isn't quite a pandemic. This is a reverse pandemic. There's a contagion going, being spread around, and Paul is a super spreader. He's not spreading a virus. He's not spreading a disease. He's not spreading a sickness. He's spreading a cure. So much so that if he touches just a bit of cloth, if that cloth is carried off, the contagions of healing go with it. This cloth that will go, whether it's a handkerchief or an apron, they'll be carried off to sick or demon-oppressed people, and they will catch the cure. The God of Israel can do this. And it's kind of understandable, you would think, right, that if this were happening in this town and a piece of cloth brushed the arm of this guy and it was carried off and it actually brought healing to people, people would start to celebrate him. They would start to worship him, maybe praise him and what he was able to do. Legends would start to spread about Paul and his handkerchief of power. That would be a great kid book. Paul and his hanky of power. Uh, but as all of this starts, we see that the people of Ephesus, they don't give Paul the credit because apparently Paul is pretty clear about where the power was actually coming from. We see right here at the beginning that it was God who was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. That's what it says in verse 11. So Paul, he's not the source of the power. He's a funnel for the power of God. Paul wasn't any more powerful than the handkerchief was powerful. God was doing his work through Paul, through this handkerchief, this apron, uh, in the way that he chose. He is where the power is. And like I said, he must have made that really clear because when these itinerant Jewish exorcists come along, and we'll, we'll return to them in a minute, and they see the power that Paul has, they, they don't claim power in the name of Paul. They claim power in the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, right? They understood that it was not Paul. They understood that it was actually Paul's God, that it was this man, Jesus. And they were using the name of Jesus almost as an incarnation, uh, sorry, not incarnation, as an incantation or a spell or a magic word, thinking that it was the, the name itself that would allow them to tap into the spiritual power that, that Paul had. And I think it reminds me at least of Simon the Magician uh, back in Acts chapter 8. Uh, who offered money to buy the power to give the Holy Spirit. It's the same type thing here. These guys want the power. They don't want the person. They don't want Jesus. They want what Jesus can do. They want what Jesus can give them. And it doesn't work like that because God is not a well of power just to be tapped into. God is not a genie and a lamp to be rubbed. God is not a vending machine. And I think that this is something that 
uh, maybe a slight tangent, but something that we might want to think about together as a church today, um, because I think this still happens today, that when people use prayer to try to get God to do with his power what they want him to do, prayer is powerful. (laughs) But how do we use prayer? How does prayer connect with the power of God? I think that sometimes we hear people use words uh, like claim in their prayers, saying things like, I claim this or that in the name of Jesus Christ. And be careful with that. Because can we claim things in our prayers? Can we say to God, God, I claim this, expecting him to do it? Well, yes, actually, in a way. (laughs) We can claim whatever God promises. If God promises... We can claim that promise with with confidence. Uh, God says that he will never leave us nor forsake us, right? Hebrews 13. We can claim that. We can have faith in that and hold tightly to it and find comfort in our our times of trial. But if somebody is with me and has cancer and I say, uh, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, heal them. I claim it in the name of Jesus Christ. I don't know if that's how it works. Because when we look in the Bible, we don't see the people of the Bible claiming miracles. What we see in the Bible is that they don't make demands of the Lord. They humbly come and make requests of the Lord. We come to the one who is in power, not as equal in power, but as submissive to him. We look at passages like Philippians 4, 6, which say that we let our requests be made known to the Lord. And we can be confident that he will hear us. We can claim that. (laughs) But other than that, we submit to the wisdom of our Lord, the goodness, His plan. There's a word I I recently learned, the omnisapience of God, the perfect wisdom of, of God. He knows exactly what's best. And so in our prayers, we come before Him humbly saying, God, if you will, heal. If you will, do this mighty work. So in prayer, we don't tap into the well of God's power. We don't rub a lamp. We don't push a button. We don't make our demands. We make our requests. And these Jewish itinerant exorcists, they were using the name of Jesus as if it was a magic word. And God essentially steps back, crosses his arm, and raises his eyebrow. (laughs) And I just would like to imagine what it was like when this happened. I, I like to imagine that the Everybody there heard these words being spoken, and then it got quiet for a few minutes as they just waited to see what would happen. But eventually the man with the demon, in fact it says here the the spirit himself speaks up and says, (laughs) beautifully, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? (laughs) And he leaps on them, It says that he mastered all of them, and it says that he overpowered them. There's that word power again. And at this point, we can see very clearly where power lies. The power does not lie in these men and their words. This evil spirit has greater power than them. And as he has his way with them. They flee from their house naked and wounded. Seven guys, seven guys running for their lives. So let's just zoom out here for a minute. What we've seen so far, just in the first six verses of this passage, is that there is a handkerchief 
that brushes the skin of a man who follows after the one true God, and that handkerchief is able to cast demons out of, of people. While seven guys doing their darndest to cast these demons out, who've made a career of casting these demons, demons out, are sneered at, overpowered, and run away naked and bleeding. And what we have to take away from this passage is that God can do more with a tissue than seven men with their whole bodies. It's not hard to see where the power lies here. It's not hard to see the rank and the order of who has what power and who has greater power over whom. The superior power of God is on display in this passage over the spirits, over the exorcists. In that order, God, spirit, exorcists. And the people of Ephesus, they, they see this. The word about this spreads throughout the town. And starting in verse 17 through to verse 20, we get to see how the people of Ephesus respond to this story. So let's, let's dive back in. I'll start reading again in verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The NASB says magnified. The NAIV says honored. He was worshipped. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value and they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. All right. So as I mentioned before, magic is just a means to try to access and control supernatural power. And apparently it was a big deal in Ephesus. We don't know all that much about it. I'd love to give you more information. I don't have it. Uh, but these people, they were all about trying to access this supernatural power. Uh, and apparently they were willing to pay huge sums of money to try to do so. But then they see what true supernatural power is, right? Then they see who truly has power. They, they come face to face with the power of the God of the universe. And how do they respond? We see four things. Number one, fear fell upon them all. Number two, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, magnified, honored. Number three, new believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And number four, they brought their books together and they burned them <laughs> publicly. And, you know, that response that we see from the crowds in Ephesus, it sounds like four things. It is four things. But in reality, it's two things. Two things that we see in four different ways. The response is twofold. They worship and they repent. That's what they do. They worship the one true God and they repent. They worship the one true God by fearing him and extolling the name of Jesus. Transformed hearts. And they repent by confessing and burning their books. Transformed lives. When the superior power of God is on display, we see transformed hearts and transformed lives. So let's, let's dive in just to, to the worship part. Verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So that's their first response. To fear... <laughs> into magnified, fear, and to praise him. 
And fear, the fear of the Lord is an interesting thing for us to wrap our minds around. We don't know what to do with it. When we talk about the fear of the Lord, we try to dismiss it as saying like, oh, it's just like reverence. It's kind of respect. But when you go to the Bible and you read about what it says about the fear of the Lord, it seems like fear is not only one of the most pervasive topics of Scripture, but maybe one of the most misunderstood. I'm going to read a handful of passages here where the fear of the Lord is mentioned. As I read it, listen for two things, for fear and for joy. So listen to this. This is from Isaiah. He says, The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Isaiah 33. Solomon writes in Proverbs 9, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. David prays in Psalm 86, Unite my heart to fear your name. Looking at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, it's said of this coming righteous branch, this one who is Jesus, that his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. His delight? Hosea writes that the children of Israel shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the later days. Hosea 3.5. The psalmist cries, serve the Lord with fear and, get this, rejoice with trembling. Psalm 2. We, we don't get fear. Maybe you think it's just an Old Testament thing. Let me, let's look to the New Testament because when Mary finds out that she's carrying the Lord and she goes to Elizabeth's house and she sings this song that we call the Magnificent, she sings what? That the Lord's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, Luke 1.5. Paul writes that as we are sanctified, we bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 7.1. I might be going overboard here, but I think you get the point. And we look forward to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, where John tells us that we, the redeemed, will one day sing before the throne, who will not fear the Lord and glorify your name, Revelation 15.4. The fear of the Lord, it sounds like a bad thing, right? But apparently, Isaiah, Solomon, David, Jesus, Hosea, Mary, John, Paul, don't think so. <laughs> we must be missing something here. Because in Scripture, it seems like the fear of the Lord is always coupled together with joy and reverence and worship and blessing and delight. Don't you want to fear the Lord like that? Don't you want to fear the Lord the way that it's described here? I mean, it seems to me in Scripture that the fear of the Lord doesn't cause people to flee from God, but to fall before God. Not in fear, but in delight. Not in, not in horror, but in praise. Don't you want to fear the Lord of the, like that? Don't you want that overwhelming sense of awe? The fear of the Lord, is a res it's not a response to what God might do to you. Because if it was, then our fear of the Lord would decrease as we learn to rest in the gospel. If it was just a fear of what God might do to us, then the redeemed in heaven would not be singing about the fear of the Lord. They've, they're already in. <laughs> they wouldn't be afraid. The fear of the Lord is not a response to what God might do to us. The fear of the Lord is a response to who God is. <laughs> His majesty. Don't you want to fear the Lord like that? Because if you do want to fear the Lord like that, if you want to know what it means to rejoice and tremble, what do you do? 
Here's an answer. I don't know if it's the complete answer. I think it's pretty, pretty complete. <laughs> but if we want to learn to fear the Lord, we have to grow to know him more deeply. I mean that in our heads and in our hearts. To grow to know him more deeply. Because I'm just thinking about through the Bible, when, when people come face to face with the Lord, when they encounter him as he truly is, nobody has to tell them that they need to fear or tremble. They just do it. <laughs> Fearing and trembling is just the natural response when somebody comes face to face with a God like our God. Joyful quivering is just the natural result. It seems that the closer you look at God, the better he gets. The nearer you draw, the sweeter he becomes. The better you know him, the more logical joyfully shivering will be. That the more you seek him, the more you will want to savor the God you find. And the more you savor him, the more you will desire to seek. That if you want to joyfully quiver before the Lord and know what it means to biblically fear him, just peek behind the curtain. Get a better sense of who he is. Because I saw the movie Avatar, and it was very disappointing. <laughs> the reason it was disappointing is because everybody told me he was so great. So that by the time I saw it, my expectations were up here and it could not be met. But the thing about our God is that you can have no expectations about him that when you look closer, fail to be met. You will always look closer and recognize that our God is better than you thought he was. We have a big God. And because of that, this, this summer, what we typically do as a church, or what I like to try to do, um, is as home groups come to an end, we try to have a, um, a class or a, a weekly group that meets through the summer that maybe focuses on, on something a little different. Um, in the past, we've done discipleship in that class and things like this. This summer, we're going to have a class that I'm calling Doctrine and Devotion. Essentially, it's a theology class. It's a theology class that's going to have the specific mission of digging for the purpose of delighting. <laughs> Of, of seeking God for the express purpose of savoring him, to learn more about him with our heads so that we can turn to worship him with our hearts. Because that's what will naturally happen when you meet a God like our God. When the superior power of God is put on display, we see transformed hearts. But the other thing we see is transformed lives. So let me read verses 18 and 19 again. We see that here. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Yeah, this, is a, this is a picture of repentance. And we, we, I mean, we talked about repentance last week, that to repent means to turn from sin to God. That's what repentance is, from disobedience to obedience to the Lord. The heart change that happened in them when they met the one true God, when they saw his power, didn't end with heart change. It continued, it proceeded to life change. It didn't stop in their hearts. It moved on to their hands. They were confessing and divulging their practices, renouncing their former ways, and then they publicly burned their magic books, publicly declaring their change of allegiance, publicly declaring that they had found something better, that though their books promised power, they found one who was more powerful, 
Though their books were valuable, they found someone of greater value. We see from the people of Ephesus that the natural response when you come face to face with the power of God is that the superior power of God put on display will transform hearts and it will transform lives. And it makes me think, well, I want to see transformed hearts. I want to see transformed lives. I long for transformed hearts and transformed lives in, in us as a, as a church. I, I want to see it in the people of our community. I want to see it in my family. Um, but how do, you, how do you transform hearts and lives? How, because it seems from this passage that people need to see the power of God. Because I'm not God and you're not God and we can't manipulate the hand of God, how do we show them his power? (laughs) How do we show people the power of God to make them want him? I can't do miracles. Maybe you can. I can't. So how do we show them his power? We can't manipulate his power, but here's what we can do. We can show people the effects of his power. We can't show people the direct power of God. We can't manipulate it. We can't make him do miracles. We can't make him make a fleece dry or wet. (laughs) But what we can do is show them what God has done in us, what God has done in our community, what God has done in our families. We can show people the power of God by showing them the effects of his power. We, We live lives of worship and repentance but we do that before a watching world, just like they burn their books. We repent and live differently in front of a world that's watching. And we can let those who've known us see the effect that God's power has had in our lives. We can bear witness to, to what he has done and how, how he has changed us. And we can, offer transform, we can offer to them the transformation that he has worked in us bearing witness and pointing to the one who makes all things new. So how do we show the power of God? How do we help bring about transformed hearts and transformed lives? The answer is we point to the power of the gospel and the effect that it has had in us and in others. That testimony is powerful. So when you speak, speak the story of Jesus Christ. Tell of his power, but also show them the power that he has done in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come humbly before you. And like, it's my greatest desire, one of my greatest desires for our church, Lord. That, that every week we would come to have a bigger understanding of you. <laughs> a greater picture of how awesome and transcendent you are. We want to have a big God. We want to fear you with the type of fear that the Bible talks about. Not one that causes us to run and hide, but one that causes us to draw near and fall down and praise. And Father, I pray that the fear of you would, would wipe away the fear of man in us, that the fear of you uh, would, would, would reorient our priorities, our affections, our lives. That the fear of you, Lord, would be the thing that's closest to our hearts and gives us the deepest joy. So, Lord, in our own time, help us continue to seek you diligently in your word, in community, in prayer. 
Help us continue to live in obedience and devotion to you. And God, use us to show your goodness and your greatness and your power to others. We love you, God. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.